Welcome to the Unknown Warrior Podcast. Once again, we're joined by author Mark Scott, and we're going to take a bit of a dive into uh, one of the previously unknown kind of characters that plays a big part in the Unknown Warrior story, uh, I would say. I'm sure you would agree, Jason, uh, Major Ernest Fitzsimon. Yes, and these are the names that we mentioned in the previous episode that were listed in uh, Jimmy Scott's amazing notebook. Um, so do you want to kind of give us uh, an introduction, Mark, into how you found out about Ernest Fitzsimon from the names that were in Jimmy's notebook? Yeah, as I explained before, I decided to research every name in the notebook. And on top of that, I made a decision to try and track down as many of the families related to the names that exist today. My rationale was that, very simply, it's hard to believe that it actually gained results, but if Jimmy Scott took the time to write these names in his notebook, would the people that he had written about would they have recorded or written or known anything about Jimmy Scott? So with that tactic, if you like, I tracked down as many of, of the, the, the people as I could. And the f- final name, I couldn't really read it correctly in the original book. And I thought it had said Fitzy, F-I-T-Z-Y. And there was also a number on a street. And if it was Fitzy, the, the number... Um, that I could see was 72 and the street was Roden Street, which is a street in Belfast that exists today. But I couldn't make anything connect. I couldn't get the census records or, or any military records to fit with that. So occasionally I, I would look at it and I'd, I'd try and do a bit more digging and then I would go back to the other names. On one particular occasion, after months and months had passed, probably years actually, I, I just happened to look at it and it suddenly said something different to me. And what I read was Fitz. 172 Roden Street, the number one I had previously mistaken for a letter Y, if you like. So I started to research that and everything fell into place. There was a family called Fitzsimon living at 172 Roden Street in the 1911 census. I could see that there were three brothers of military age. I then started to research those names in the Royal Ulster Rifles Museum in Belfast and found that they were indeed attached to not just the same battalion as Jimmy Scott, the 14th Royal Irish Rifles, but also the same company, B Company. So this name really brings it right to Jimmy Scott, if you like, right to people that he would have known and served with until his death. So the three brothers, two of them, were uh, other ranks, if you like. They joined the ranks. Um, John, who was known as Jack, and James Fitzsimons, and they actually have an an S on the end of their name. This is another thing that complicated the research. Um, The family name, the surname, evolved through the years. So Ernest was the officer. He had been training to be a teacher when war broke out. He joined the Queen's University Officer Training Corps in Belfast and was then commissioned into the 14th Royal Irish Rifles. Now, at the time, he joined the battalion on the 22nd of June, 1916. He was thrown into the the thick of it, really. His two brothers had already been in the trenches, if you like. They'd all gone to France together back in 1915. So they had experience of trench warfare, but Ernest didn't. And he joined literally a week before the 1st of July battle. And he was appointed to a battalion intelligence posting rather than 
being a, a platoon commander. So Fitz then, on the 1st of July 1916, he was probably in the headquarters bunker at the back of Thiepval Wood. W- within 100 yards of his position, his brothers were out in the battle. One of his brothers, James, uh, was awarded the military medal for gallantry on the 1st of July. And the other brother, unfortunately, was killed in action, young Jack. And it was interesting that Jack was originally recorded as wounded. He was then recorded as missing and then he was recorded some time later as being killed in action in that his body had been found. And there was a report in one of the Belfast newspapers and it actually stated that James had been awarded the military medal and at the time of the report, Jack was missing. So his mother had it in in her head, Jeannie Fitzsimon, that perhaps Jack may have actually been missing and wasn't dead. So it's it's almost the reverse of what we've seen with Mr. Carson. And from that point of view, Jeannie would not accept the death of her son, even years later, when it was clearly pointed out to her that he actually had a grave. He's buried at Connaught Cemetery, just in front of Thiepfell Wood. Like you say, it brings back the personal loss again, and obviously what Ernest must have been thinking when he was behind the lines. And hearing the reports come in, you know that he must have been sat there worrying about his his brothers being out there in the thick of the action. So he worked in more sort of headquarters roles, didn't he, throughout the rest of his His war? He remained with the battalion intelligence role. He was then moved into brigade intelligence, which is the the next level, if you like. And the, the brigade, the 109th Infantry Brigade, moved up into Belgium. And they held the line there and basically prepared again for another large battle, which took place on the 7th of June, 1917. And that was at Wechata in Belgium. And Ernest Fitzsimon, he was actually commended for his handling of the signals and the communications across the battlefield uh, by Brigadier General Ambrose Ricardo, who was in charge at that time. If, if you, you study the history of that battle, basically everything that day went correctly everything went right it was the battle where large mines were detonated all along the front line and the 14th battalion suffered casualties in literally two figures i think it was something like 46 men killed so completely the opposite to what happened the previous year at thiepfel by that stage however he was mentally burnt out and he Ricardo actually sent him into training role simply to let him recuperate. All of this information that we know about him came from his son. One of his sons I managed to track down. One lives in Dublin and another in Canada. And it was the the chap in Canada who had um, most of the material relating to his father and his father's military service, if you like. And he himself had been a, a medical doctor in the RAMC, Royal Army Medical Corps. He was a major himself. He was more clued in to the military aspect of his father's life. Thinking about Fitz, the brilliant thing is that he kept so much documentation in relation to his his time working for the Directorate of Graves Registration and Inquiry. The DGRE was was kind of a precursor to the, the Commonwealth War Graves commission that we know today or the imperial war graves commission as it was then known in the sense that it was a it was a military body that was tasked with recovering graves and concentrating them into the the cemeteries that we see today so he decided to stay on in the army after the war had ended and begin work with the dgre at a place called saint paul yeah he he was a, a major 
in charge of the unit at St. Paul, which incidentally was the, the location where the, the body of the unknown warrior was selected. And he was under the commander of General Wyatt. So while I, I, I met his son, and his son showed me all of these documents and, and photographs which he had, his father had kept. He knew very little about them, really. You know, he, some of them, there, there's no annotation and, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at a document maybe completely out of context. But he showed me all this material. I was amazed by it, quite overwhelmed by it, to be honest. And he happened to mention quite offhandly, oh, yes, and after the war, my dad did that thing with the Unknown Warrior. So I thought, yeah, okay. You know, to be honest, I took it with a pinch of salt. But then he, he gave me the opportunity to examine all of the, the documents and material. And we've looked at them now ourselves um, together. And th- there is a, a literally a mountain of information. But when it's examined, I can now say without doubt that he was actually involved in the operation um, to recover the body of the unknown warrior. And uh, there is material there that that backs up that and corroborates that idea. And before we jump into that kind of very interesting tidbit of history, uh, just give us uh, the pricey to that, Mark. Is, is there anything that kind of gives us a bit of an inkling as to why Fitz wanted to be involved in the in the DGRE, why he kind of stayed on after the war? Why do you think he did that? Fitzsimon was, he was on a temporary commission, which basically meant that he would remain an officer for the duration of the war and he, he could be promoted up the ranks. But once the war ended... Basically, it was time to go home and he would leave the army. So that, that happened to to most men at that time who were commissioned into service battalions. Um, and the name service basically just meant service for the duration of the war. So he was a, on a, a temporary commission to a service battalion. But at the end of the war, he was obviously given the opportunity to serve in the Department of Graves Registration and Inquiry. I think it's important to look at what was going on in Ireland at that time, certainly 1920, 1921, you have partition. Before that, you had the run-up to partition. And certainly at that time, Ireland may not have been a particularly safe place for an ex-officer to live. There are certainly records of quite a few who were murdered at that time and had their houses burnt down and violence put upon them. So it may simply have been the case that Fitz had this opportunity to remain as a major in peacetime France, or he could come home to Ireland and take his chance. And it was probably a simple decision to make. Yeah, he could stay at St. Paul and carry out basically administrative duties and take a major's wage and enjoy the French life, I suppose, as it was. You know, it would have been quite an adventurous position to be in, with France rebuilding itself, France and Belgium rebuilding after the war. And... Um, I think he, he basically that was his choice and that's the choice he made and I can understand why. I think the, the archive that Fitz has kept is just incredible because it, it provides you a real insight into what life was like working at St. Paul, the place where the Unknown Warrior was, was chosen at that time. Um, I'd never really seen photographs or any material before that put faces to those people that were behind the operation, basically. Everyone kind of has heard of 
perhaps Wyatt or, or David Railton in relation to the story but the names and the faces of the people like Ernest Fitzsimon who actually enabled the operation to be carried out is a privilege really to kind of see behind the shroud and see some of the people who actually created this operation. One of the photographs in relation to what you've just said is the fact that there was a, a hockey team that was created that was Ireland versus the rest of the world simply because of how many other Irish soldiers and officers had remained behind that were in a similar situation to Ernest. That was dated October 1920 which is close to the unknown warrior date Ireland could obviously feel the full team England or Scotland or Wales couldn't <laughs> so so they, they had to to uh, pull together odds and sods really to, to form the rest of the world I, th- I think also in, when I started to examine this material I adopted a similar strategy if you like you know if, if Jimmy Scott wrote down a name what would that person have written about Jimmy Scott or, or what information would they have and I think between us, it's fair to say that we devised a strategy that um, if we can identify as many people in the photographs as possible and then find out what they knew about the Unknown Warrior and life at St. Paul. Again, it's as if we're sort of dealing with the subject from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Um, we all know General Wyatt, Realton, the King, Rudyard Kipling, you know, all these big history people had an input in the story. But I think it's fair to say to find out what actually happened you have to look at the people on the ground. You have to look at the people at the bottom of the story. And that's what we decided to do. I think it's important really to note that material like this doesn't come around very often. There is nothing really left that provides the kind of the insight into what was going on at St. Paul and, and the names of the people that were there, like the Fitzsimon archive does. It's an incredibly unique set of documents, really, that we'd, we'd never really had the opportunity to explore before in relation to the Unknown Warrior? You know, we, we, we are in, indebted, of course, to the family, um, to, to Dr. John Fitzsimon and to um, Linda McCauley, who's actually a BBC broadcaster in Belfast, for kindly allowing us to examine it um, because it, it has led us down a, a very important path. The soldiers who carried out this operation, who, you know, an operation that was put together very, very quickly, was not a pleasant operation for the soldiers that had been tasked with finding these bodies, exhuming them and bringing them to St. Paul. They did such a fantastic job that the body that still lies in Westminster Abbey now is still unidentifiable, is still sacred, and the, the mystery and the uniqueness of the Unknown Warrior is still there. And that's a testament to these men and, and women who were behind the operation and who carried it out. And it's a privilege to be able to name some of these people like Ernest. Yeah, you know, as as we started to, if you like, knock off each face and identify them, you got a, another aspect of the story. For instance, when we had identified Cedric Hardwick, he was an actor before the war and continued acting after the war and was the youngest British actor to be knighted at that time before Laurence Olivier. But again, if you if you bring his story right back to Saint Paul, and we know what he did there because he he wrote memoirs in 1932 in a book called Let's Pretend. And he states there that he helped guard the body overnight before it was taken to Boulogne. And also he was involved in an aspect of the operation where misinformation was actually given to the press. And he actually led the press, in his own words, on a wild goose chase when significant parts of the operation were being carried out. So I thought it was quite funny that you had Hardwick, who was an actor, actually placed in this acting role by Fitzsimon. You know, it's amazing, really, um, when we know his history and his subsequent history. I think that's really important. The photographs allow us to place these people who may have talked about their involvement in The Unknown Warrior 
at Sam Paul for definite at that time with the group of officers that are involved in the operation to create the Unknown Warrior. So it just adds further corroboration to people's stories. And we recently discovered an incredible film which shows Ernest Fitzsimon talking about the Unknown Warrior and talking himself about that disinformation, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I was I was amazed to discover this. I'd known about possible existence of footage for some years, but I'd never actually seen it. And it was just by sheer fluke that it was brought to my attention just a few weeks ago. And uh, frustrating because my book was finished. <laughs> but... <laughs> But also reassuring in that, although I couldn't include any of this in the book, what was discussed by Ernest Fitzsimon and recorded, I had sort of found out the hard way, if you like, particularly when he states himself that he was the executive officer in charge of the operation on the ground, which was actually the role that I had put him in. And I think the role that we agreed that he must have been in. But to actually hear it from the man's mouth was very reassuring because I'd already written about it. It was. And hearing him say that he worked with Lieutenant Hardwick in providing a a dossier, as he refers to, of misinformation to the press to send them off on a wild goose chase to keep them away from the operation is is just a fascinating insight into what was going on at St Paul at that time. And who knows, may have led to some of the confusion with regards to, you know, the number of bodies and and certain locations. You, You don't know how that information that was originally intended to throw people off the scent has entered the consciousness with regards to this story. Well, yeah, I mean, that that file, that dossier, was specifically put together to give to the press. So I I would imagine that the the press reporters would have reported it back to their editors and it may have then entered the public knowledge of the story. We don't know. We don't know exactly what was in that dossier, but I've no doubt that it's possibly the, the, the source of the confusion that we've come up against over the last century when we're, we're reading reports and accounts as you see it as to where and how many bodies were, were actually recovered and involved. And there's so many of the, the key names involved in the story that we'll go into later within the podcast that are on these photographs and you kind of you you wish that they could speak to you and, and tell you a little bit more about some of the things that went on but one of the stories that you do have that was passed down by the family is in relation to the body when it was at Boulogne and it was brought alongside HMS Verdun in a wagon that Fitz wasn't too happy about, shall we say. The interesting thing about this is it's just what we accept through what we see. And I've seen, I'm sure you have, a lot of your listeners would have seen as well, numerous photographs of the the French side of the operation between the Citadel at Boulogne and HMS Verdun. Um, There's a series of photographs taken during the, the procession. And numerous shots of this wagon with the coffin on board traveling through the streets in the cortege and I really didn't think twice about it so it was while talking to to John Fitzsimon Fitz's son he said to me he said yeah my father um when he mentioned about it that he had planned the the unknown warrior operation um he said that part of the plan was that the French were to provide a gun carriage and Fitz had gone to the quayside at Boulogne, where Marshal Foch and General McDonough were. And uh, he had gone there um, to wait the arrival of the coffin. And when it arrived from the Citadel, he was shocked to find out that it arrived in a general service wagon. And he had specifically directed that a gun carriage be used. His son said that his father basically went 
apoplectic with rage at this. So it was only in researching the, the, the whole story, I found a photograph. It's held in the Imperial War Museum and it shows like a panoramic view almost. The, the quayside at Boulogne and HMS Verdun is tied up. Or Marshal Foch is in the foreground and he appears to be perhaps about to be giving a speech. And you can see the wagon with the unknown warrior on board. And behind it and over to the right of the image, you can actually see Fitzsimon. He's there. We know what he looks like because there's so many photographs that we have in the archive of him. And he can clearly be seen, but he's not standing at attention. He's not even facing the uh, coffin of the unknown warrior. You can see him actually side on. He has an arm extended and you can see the veins in his neck have almost come to the surface. And he does appear to be in a rage. And it's amazing that when you, you know, you get this story and incidentally, John Fitzsimon, who told me the story, he didn't actually know that his father was in that photograph until I pointed it out to him. And when I showed him just how his father appears in the photograph, he just laughed. And I just find that really, really amazing because the story that he had believed that had come down through the family, if you like, um, there it was, you know, in, in the photograph. Now, when I look at the photographs of the Unknown Warrior and you see that the coffin, not in the gun carriage, but in the general service wagon, you know, you, it just puts a whole different slant on it. You know, you sort of think... That shouldn't have happened, and I know why it shouldn't have happened. And that's the beauty of being able to identify people in photographs that then allow you to corroborate stories, and then it unlocks other people then within those photographs and puts names to faces, and you know you can explore what's going on. Previously, we didn't have those names and those people, so you just accept them for what they are. But Fitz was one of the very last people to to leave France, wasn't he? He was one of the very last of the British expeditionary force to leave, and he had an interesting career after the army as well, didn't he? Yes, he he was one of the four last BEF soldiers to leave. It was him. Cedric Hardwick was with him, a sergeant major called Pratt, and a driver called Matthew Parker, and uh, they, they were photographed, and uh, the Daily Sketch and the Daily Mirror carried the story on the day, uh, which was the 27th of October, 1921. So he left the army then, and he joined the Royal Ulster Constabulary in their C1 division. Basically, there's very, very little history about this unit. They were all ex-servicemen, um, around about 5,000 other ranks and about 120 or so officers and they formed this special constabulary which remained in existence um, for only about five or six years and then in 1928 he married and moved to Dublin where he lived he must have retrained or, or at some point along the line but anyway he became a barrister at law and he was actually uh, the first barrister to practice both north and south of the new border, if you like, in Ireland. So he continued to live in, in Dublin. His wife, Mabel, was a doctor. And the next that we know of him comes from a document in 1942, and it was his CV. We don't know why. We don't know what position or what job he was actually applying for. But you have to think that Ireland was neutral then, and this was in, effectively in the middle of the Second World War. When you look at the text of the CV, it is very much intelligence orientated, if you like. He explains all of his intelligence postings in the First World War 
and all of his staff officer postings. Mm. He outlines his organisational skills. So one can only imagine the type of role he was he was looking at, but it certainly looks like it was possibly a military one and maybe an intelligence role. As I say, we don't know. We don't know what post he took up or what he was even applying for or if the CV was even ever used. But in it, from our point of view, there's, there is a one single line where he outlines that he planned and carried out the scheme whereby the body of the unknown warrior was recovered from the field in France and taken to the destroyer HMS Verdun in Boulogne. So that, that little one line is there. And again, you have to think of his position as a barrister. He's not going to make that up. I think we can accept that as the truth. And we know from the documents that he was working at St. Paul. He's in there with all the big players. He was definitely there. And frustratingly, we don't have any documents specifically in relation to the operation for the Unknown Warrior. But it's clear that he's a senior officer. He's working at St. Paul and he's involved. You know, And the photographs provide us with amazing context to uncovering some of the other people involved. And on the, the, the newly uncovered material we have it. From the horse's mouth, if you like. He was yes. the executive officer in charge. Uh, those are his, his words. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, that is exactly the role that I had placed him in. I think as well from all those kind of documents, you get a really good insight into the, into the personality of the man, don't you, as well? You can kind of read between all of that and you can tell that he was a man that was in the right place at the right time for a lot of things. He was a networker. He was, a, you know, he knew the right people, didn't he? He was always, always right place, right time, and in front of the camera. That's it, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he's there with, with all, the, all the heavy faces, if you like. You know, he's, he's, he's with Fosh, he's with McDonough, he's with Wyatt. You know, he's, he's, he's part of it. Yeah, and he's just one of the previously kind of unknown faces that, that your research kind of uncovered, and we'll talk about many more as we go on. We will do, because the archive itself plays a key role in helping us unravel some bits of the story, really, doesn't it? So we will uh, we'll explore that in, in future podcasts. Thank you again, Mark, for your uh, help, and we will speak to you soon. Thank you.